Well, good morning. Wow, that was a deafening uh, silence of the welcome back. Thanks. It's great. Missed you too. Well, you may or may not have noticed that Karen and I have been away. Uh, we were in the U.S., long and eventful trip. A lot of things happened. The Lord really blessed our time a lot of ways. Won't go into that here. We're, we're just happy to be back and really happy to be finished with the weddings of offspring. Uh, glad that chapter is now closed. While we were there, uh, there was a large church near my hometown that was in the news, sadly. Uh, the pastor was accused of diverting funds from the church to another project with which he was involved. He was also accused of having changed the church's bylaws to allow him to remove members alone by his own action. And when he was confronted, when this became known and, and uh, people complained and, and tried to address this, his response was, you either trust and follow your leadership or you don't. Uh, these people are troublemakers and Satan is trying to destroy this ministry. Well, I don't know the whole story here. This is a church that, again, this is the area where I grew up, so I know the church. They've historically preached the gospel, but regardless of how the situation ends, I'm virtually certain that the faith of some people will be wounded by the actions of people that have undermined their words and have distracted from the gospel. We can all probably think of people who have done this. Their actions have undermined their words. It's like trying to, have a, even trying to introduce two people. Instead of letting them talk, you get in their way and you don't, you don't allow the conversation to continue. We do that when our actions undermine our words. We see it in the tragic failures of church leaders. Maybe this is one. Uh, moral failures, financial failures, abuse of power, more. We see it in, uh, in obnoxious Christians, right? And before you think of some other obnoxious Christian, look in the mirror because sometimes we're that person, right? I know I've been that person sometimes. We need to remember that when it comes to the gospel, we cannot separate ourselves from the gospel. The gospel is this basic, so simple, beautiful message that Jesus Christ has died and risen. And based, if we put our faith, hope, and love in him, we are forgiven of our sin. We are freed from the bondage to sin, and we have a future hope. And that's our message. And unfortunately, often our actions distract, confuse and cloud that message. So our, what we must do, because we cannot separate ourselves from our message, is to be sure our actions line up with our words, that we, so that we point people to Jesus and don't hinder them coming to him. So that's our focus today as we resume our series in <clears throat> First Thessalonians chapter, chapters 2 and 3. Uh, Paul is expanding, unpacking what he said in chapter 1. He's retelling their shared history, going over what happened when he and his team were there, and what happened after they left. And I believe he does this to help the Thessalonians excel at what they're already doing. They're already sharing the gospel. They're making disciples. And I believe he's not so much defending himself from criticism as he is helping them remember how they were so that they will know to do the same as they share the gospel with others. Now, they had poor models in their day from traveling teachers that were abundant, flattery, uh, financial exploitation, abuse of power, and more. So he challenges them toward faithfulness to the gospel, living consistently with what they say, and with providing encouragement and support to those they engage. That's really the focus of chapters 2 and 3. Keep coming back next few weeks. We'll unpack that more if you dare. Um, but our text today really begins on what Paul began in the first four chapters, first four verses of chapter 2. 
We must be faithful to a message that has been entrusted to us. We didn't make this up. It is something that has come to us from God in trust. We must pass it on faithfully. But we also must be sure that our actions don't confuse or cloud or block that message somehow. So that's, that's, our, that's the focus of, of today's passage. So as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 5, let's see how Paul and his team conducted themselves among the Thessalonians. As we read, notice what they did not do. Notice what they did do. And notice the effect that this had on the Thessalonians. And in each of these areas, they are distinguishing themselves from the teachers, the common practice of traveling teachers of their day. So let's begin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 5. Picking up sort of in mid-sentence, but um, that's all right. <clears throat> you know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order, to, in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your words to us. Please open our hearts and minds to understand, most of all, to understand the gospel, how it applies to us today. We pray, as the, the Greeks did of, of uh, so many years ago, just that we would see Jesus. So please open our eyes and hearts to what you have for us today. Grant us grace to internalize that and obey, please, for your sake, among the nations and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first thing that Paul and his team did not do, they did not use flattery. That's in verse 5. This follows naturally from verse 4 that we looked at before, where Paul says that we are not trying to please people, but God. So he didn't speak to please people. Flattery affirms someone, often speaking less than truthfully, if not downright deceitfully, in order to get their loyalty or, or something else from them. This was a common practice in Paul's day, and it still is in our own. We as individuals, we as a church, we flatter people when we make much of people instead of making much of Jesus. Okay? Uh, we flatter people when we treat sin lightly and make less of Jesus to the point that maybe communicating that following Jesus boils down to worrying less and being nicer to each other. Well, that's not the gospel. I grew up in a church like that. There were a lot of really nice people, so nice they're annoying, right? But... I, I did grow up in a church like this. The people were really nice, but there was just very little good news. There was very little gospel. And, and there's no life in that. And that's, that's, that's not good. It's terrible. So I'm reminded of a day uh, many years ago, before we moved to Romania, ran into a friend of mine. We were talking. I've known him since elementary school. And we were talking. And he said, and by this time, I'd become a believer. And, and uh, 
he said he'd visited a couple of churches, and I knew both of the churches in, the, in this area. And uh, he said, you know, one of those preachers makes me feel really guilty, but one of them makes me feel like a king. Well, I mean, I know this guy since we were like 10, and I knew which preacher was speaking truth, and I knew which one was flattering, let me just say. Um, we're still friends. Heard from him last week. But, uh, yeah, that's, flattery is, is uh, it's just all too prevalent. When we make much of people, instead of making much of Jesus, making light of sin. Paul and his team weren't like this. The Thessalonians knew it well. If we look at Acts 17, where they started the church, we see that he preached to them a suffering Messiah. He said the, the scriptures teach that Jesus, the Messiah, must suffer and that Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus suffered the Thessalonians suffered. He prepared them to suffer for following Christ. So the gospel, it is good news. It, it is breathtakingly good news. It is breathtaking in its promises. Forgiveness, freedom, life in Christ, hope of heaven. All of these things are, are stunning in their magnitude. And honestly, following Jesus more than 40 years, I'm still learning, feel I've only scratched the surface. But... We have to understand the gospel is good and it's breathtaking. It is not flattering. It doesn't tell us, you know, you're almost there. It doesn't tell us how great our potential is. It says we are dead in sin and we need a resurrection. It tells us we are lost and rebels and we need a savior. And there to redeem us, to deliver us, required the death of God's son and his resurrection. That we might have life. And he willingly, joyfully, gladly paid that price for us. So it's not flattering, but it's freeing. <laughs> and it's breathtaking because we no longer have to pretend that we're something we're not. It tells us we're alienated from God and in need of reconciliation. And we do people no favors if we, if we soften this. Okay? If we don't communicate honestly about sin and death... We are not doing people any favors. We are, we are diminishing the goodness of the good news. Now, this doesn't mean we never affirm people. It doesn't mean we never encourage. It doesn't mean we don't, we don't compliment excellence where we see it. But in all this, have to be sincere because people can spot the fake. We have to be motivated by people's best interests. And always, with any opportunity, we have to speak the truth about sin, about judgment, about death, heaven and hell and Christ. So they didn't flatter. I just looked at the clock. By the way, I've got uh, seven points and uh, five closing words. So uh, it's all right. We'll get you to lunch on time. Do not fear, little flock. <clears throat> Second thing they did not do, they did not exploit their hearers financially. That's in verse 5. Nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. But that's also in verse 9. He says, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to you, to anyone, while we preached the gospel of God to you. So financial exploitation was common in Paul's day. It is in ours. We see this in the exorbitant amounts of money or wealth possessed by the false teachers of the prosperity gospel. Multiplied millions of dollars. Um, Benny Hinn's worth $60 million. Joel Osteen's worth $100 million. Now, that's... Uh, that's a little more than we make, shall we say. That's not income, that, that's wealth, but still. And no accountability with any of this. So, it's, and it's at the expense of people who are deceived into giving. 
Now, it's not wrong to be wealthy, especially wealth gained by work and by saving. But wealth gained by deception is wrong. Wealth gained by deception in God's name is even more wrong. Well, Paul's contrast was a marked contrast to these. He wasn't motivated by greed. He didn't hide greed behind a mask of service to God. They not only did not exploit the Thessalonians financially, they worked long hours to support themselves so that they did not put any kind of financial burden on the Thessalonians. Now, let me clarify this with a couple of things that Paul said from 1 Corinthians 9, because we can walk away from this thinking, okay, you know, wealth is wrong, or it's, it's wrong for teachers, preachers to be supported by the churches, things like that. So in 1 Corinthians 9, and I'll point you to that chapter, I'll just make a couple of observations. He says it's appropriate for teachers in the church to receive financial support from the church. That's, that's appropriate. It's appropriate for a church to support the, a pastor to the extent that it's able. So, Mike, if you're watching, we'll be as generous as we can. Um, <clears throat> however, though Paul had the right to expect or demand financial support from those that he taught, he did not do that, not for himself. He, <clears throat> he asked for money from the places he taught in order to help him go to somewhere else to preach the gospel or to meet the needs of others. So even if you notice Philippians 4, he says that the church at Philippi, now he didn't ask for money from the Philippians, but the Philippian church sent him some help while he was in Thessalonica. So that's how he did it. He didn't ask them, you pay me because I've taught you. Instead, he said, you know what, if this is, you think this is good news, help me tell this to somebody else. Help support us to get to other places. That's, that's how he, he worked with that. So, uh, third thing they didn't do, they didn't seek praise from people, didn't exercise power over them. That's in verse 6. Weren't looking for praise from people, even, not from you or anyone else, though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Again, this was common in Paul's day. Power games like this are common in our day as well. Abuse of power, lack of accountability. They're all, all too common in churches. That's why we have systems of accountability financially and otherwise and, uh, here. And that's, all, that's just good and, it, and it's healthy, right? Paul didn't play these power games. He didn't manipulate people. He pointed people to Christ. He didn't talk about Jesus and then get in the way so that people couldn't come. He pointed people to Christ and he didn't let money or power be a part of that conversation. So they simply did not exercise the, the, the authority that they could have done as apostles of Christ. Um, very much like Jesus in Philippians 2, who, who existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. The idea is he did not insist on his rights either. He, he humbled himself. And Paul is, is simply following Jesus' example. So those are three things they avoided. Now we've got four things that they did. Uh, So in verse 7 it says they were gentle. Verse 7 says, Instead we were like young children among you as a nursing mother cares for her children. I want us to look at this verse in the ESV. It says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her children. Earlier versions of the NIV, like this old one I have here, uh, also translate this as gentle instead of young children. And we've talked about things like this before, you know, that I find this terribly interesting. And the difference between these two translations in the original language is one letter. Okay. So if you're interested in how this happened, for the two of you that are interested, <laughs> find me after the service, I'll tell you. I had this whole long spiel about how this happened, and I thought, you know, nobody 
probably really cares. So um, I think it's really interesting. I even practice saying the words, but I won't do that because I'll forget it now and I'll botch it and I didn't write it down. So if you're interested, see me after. I think it's really interesting and no judgment if you don't. Um, but that's, that's what happened. One letter, translators look at this and, and try to decide how this should work. And um, I think gentle fits the context better if you look at the flow of the, of the paragraph. So as in the ESV, I think that fits better here. He could, because there is, even though Paul could be forceful, he and his team were gentle. They weren't, um, well, they were just gentle. Okay, we've already talked about the things that they weren't, right? And there is hardly a better word picture of gentleness than a mother nursing a child. So I think it fits here. Paul had to make the Thessalonians face hard truths about sin, about judgment, heaven, and hell. He had to prepare them for hard circumstances, for suffering, for Christ. But in doing this, he was gentle. He was genuine, even, even tender, like a mother nursing her child. It's just, it's a beautiful, serene picture. Now, the moments before a child is nursing, not serene at all, right? We, I mean, we've raised four children, I'm telling you that. It is definitely serene by comparison, right? Before it is monstrous window-breaking noise, and then there's this uh, lovely silence, the serenity. It is a, just a beautiful picture of tenderness, gentleness. You know, no nursing mother says, you better get busy, right? Like, come on, let's get it going. You know, take in your veggies or you're going to bed without supper. No, no, no nursing mother says this, right? No, it is, it is just... Self-giving, it is, it is beautiful. And Paul uses that as a word picture of the way he acted with the Thessalonians. Gentle, tender, sincere, bringing peace. It's, just, it's beautiful. And gentleness like that is increasingly rare in our day. You need only look at the news, if you dare. But even on a personal level, it seems in some places we've lost the ability to have civil conversations about things where we disagree. And there seems to be confusion about the difference between an opinion and a, an identity. See, if you and I disagree about an opinion, we can talk about it, we can learn from each other, grow in understanding. We may have to agree to disagree, but we can do that. The kingdom of God is, is bigger than both of us. But if I see your opinion, or if you see your opinion as your identity, and I disagree with you, I've not just disagreed with an opinion, I've slighted you as a person. Maybe I've even denied you justice. And that is where, that's where my home culture is, at least if you read the news. Honestly, the last seven weeks we were in the U.S., we were around some remarkably normal people. <laughs> I thought, I should read, read news less. Just be around real people. But if you read the news, that's why Leonard Skinner said, I don't read that daily news, because it ain't hard to figure why people get the blues, right? They can't dig what they can't use. If they stick to themselves, we'll be much less abused. Wow, I just took you back to the 70s. That's all right. There you go. Shouldn't be in denial about what's going on in the world, but understand that we have lost this ability to have civil conversations, to be gentle even in our relationships with one another, especially with people that we want to see come to Christ. And along with this comes this tendency to marginalize someone with whom you disagree by painting them with the extreme position on whatever view you disagree. So, for example, you're a Calvinist? Oh, well, you like infant damnation, right? 
You're an Arminian? Oh, you believe in work salvation, right? You believe women should be elders? Well, you're obviously a hostile feminist, man-hating feminist. You believe women should not be elders? Well, you're obviously a paternalistic oppressor, an enemy of all that is good. You laugh, but that's the kind of things people say about people with whom they disagree these days. I think you get the point. Gentleness helps us keep our own feelings in check, watch our words, and help people face difficult truths about sin and hell and judgment so that we can point them to Jesus. Because often, especially the issues of our day, as we become engulfed in those, they can quickly obscure the gospel and block that conversation and hinder us from pointing people to Christ. Here's something else they did in verse 8. They shared not just the gospel, but their lives. We loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not just the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Other people need to see how the gospel affects our lives. They need to see it. They need to see it lived out day by day. We can't be transactional. That is, just talking to someone so that I can get through this information, tell you this information. People can spot when you're not sincere and you don't really care. We can't. This is, this is not to be transactional. And there are times when you only have a few minutes with someone. You, the Lord gives you this opportunity. You engage them in conversation. And you only have a couple of minutes. You take that opportunity. Cross, if the bridge is there, cross it. Cross it boldly. Cross it joyfully. But if you have opportunity, understand that people need to see the gospel lived out. They need to see what it looks like when a husband and wife live together in a gospel-centered marriage. They need to see what gospel-centered friendships look like in the context of a local church. Single or married, they need to see what relationships look like, what life looks like, what work looks like, what choices look like that are all flowing from the gospel. People need to see this. People desperately need to see this. People here need to see this because the, the default assumption is that religion is maybe something my grandparents believe. It is something that it was just irrelevant. There are all these old buildings around the city for some reason. People once believed this. But when you live differently for the gospel's sake, it, is, it, it gets attention. And it reinforces the message. Why? Why do you show up to work and you work hard and you work joyfully, even though this is a crazy job? <laughs> and yet you show up, you're dependable, you work with integrity, you're honest, you work hard. Why? You say it's because I really don't work for this company. I work for Jesus. Like, well, you are crazy. That's okay. Let them think that. Prove over time what it means to follow Jesus in real life. Now, another thing they did, verse 10, they conducted themselves with integrity. It says in verse 10, Your witnesses, so as God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Paul reminds the Thessalonians, he and his team conducted themselves with integrity. Remember, he just said, we shared our lives with you. So if he was lying, it would be an easy, easy thing to spot, right? But he says, we lived with integrity among you. They were blameless. Now, blameless is not sinless perfection. It is integrity. It is doing the right thing consistently, but also being transparent about failures. Not self-deprecating, and obviously I know a lot about self-deprecation, but I think it's funny. This is not constantly berating yourself. That's, that's just another form of pride, okay? But it is 
you can be honest about failures and shortcomings and not pretend that you're something you're not. The gospel frees you to do that. Okay? You, you don't have to be perfect, but you can live with integrity. Okay? It is that you can do. And that is what the Lord wants of us, to live with integrity, to live blamelessly. You know, he called Zacharias blameless. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. You know, a few verses later, Zacharias is silenced for nine months because he didn't believe the angel. Like, okay, blameless is not perfection. Job was called blameless because he feared the Lord and hated evil. Didn't say he never did evil, he just hated it. See? I mean, Romans 7, Paul says, I do the very thing I hate. Paul was blameless. So it is your attitude towards sin, right? First John 1 says, if we, if God is light in him, there's no darkness at all. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. He said, well, if we walk in the darkness, we deceive ourselves, right? So the point is, we walk in the light, that exposes sin in our hearts. The, the evidence of faith is not so much the absence of sin, but our attitude towards sin, because sin is going to be there. If you don't think sin is there, you need to... You need to get a better mirror. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're in denial. And I don't mean the river in Egypt. Um, thank you. Gosh, my poor wife had to laugh. That was a pity laugh, but that's okay. I'll take it at this point. All right. Verses 11 and 12, they challenged their hearers to faithfulness. 11 and 12, you know that we dealt with you, each of you, each of you has a father, deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So they challenged the Thessalonians, they're here, to live faithfully, to live in light of, at the end of verse 12, in light of God's love, because they are deeply, unconditionally loved, in light of God's call, that is that work of grace that he had done in their lives to bring them from death to life, and in light of the hope that God had given them for the future amid this time of intense suffering in which they found themselves. So Paul's not like a coach who's demanding some level of performance from his players, right? So I, uh, I played basketball in my high school. Uh, believe it or not, I was very short. Um, and other than lacking talent, I could have been great. So <laughs> if I'd only had a, you know, a few more centimeters of height and a wee bit of talent, I probably would have played more often. Um, but that aside, I'm not bitter. Um, I was thinking about my coach as I, as I read about this, and uh, you know, several words came to mind when I thought of our coach. You know, he was, gentle was not one of them, okay? I mean, coaches just aren't known for gentleness. And our coach, he was not gentle, not with any of us as basketball players. Uh, he also was our football coach. This is American football. And uh, honestly, I didn't play football. He yelled at me anyway. <laughs> See me in the hall, just yell at me. You know, just a uh, great guy. In all of this, okay, Paul, he's, he's gentle. He's relating them. Just, just think of the highly relational ways he describes it. It's like a nursing mother, but now like a father, but not like the stern, distant father. But he, he says, like a father would his children, we encouraged you. We, that is, they're, they're urging them forward. They're affirming every step of obedience, no matter how small or faltering. They're affirming everything they possibly can, but also urging them to continue and to press forward and to make progress. They're comforting them. The word means to come close and speak as friends. So I think they're acknowledging the pain of the situation of this intense suffering, but also pointing them to Christ. They press on 
Press on. You're going to make it by the grace of God. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Don't despair. Yes, this is hard. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it may cost you your life. Look to Christ. You can trust him in this moment, in this life, and the life to come. And they also urged them. This is the most emphatic of the three. It's the idea of sharing and testifying, challenging them on to, to further faithfulness. So you get this beautiful picture of how, how they were gentle, at the same time challenging them to move forward, not allowing them to be static, but all of this so that they would fulfill what God had planned for them, but also that they would not be a hindrance as they continued to share the gospel. Now, let's see their response. If we see that in verse 13, it says, We thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So the Thessalonians received Paul's message for what it actually was, the, a message from God. Of course, right? It's a message from God. That's how they received it. They received it that way, at least in part, because of the way Paul and his team lived. They did not undermine the message by what they said. They didn't distract from the message. They didn't confuse the message. I don't really have time to tell the story, but I like it, so I'm going for it. A few years ago, uh, we had some extended time in the U.S. I taught a preaching class at a you know, Christian college. And uh, first day, I went in and I preached a short sermon to the class and I asked the students to just give me feedback. What was good? What was bad? And I said, you know, and I did, I said, I have intentionally done some things poorly. So feel free to critique, you know. So they said some things, a couple I hadn't noticed, but that's all right. Uh, you know, and, uh, but one thing I had done before the class is I, I was wearing a tie and I, I made my tie crooked, Okay. And none of them mentioned that. Finally, after all the feedback, I said, so what about the tie? And there goes, these guys go, man, that was so distracting. We could hardly hear anything you said. I said, yeah, that's right. I said, so before you preach, just check your tie, okay? That is, I said, honestly, that's sermon delivery. A lot of it is just removing distractions, Okay. That is what our job as evangelists is, is just don't be a distraction to the message. The word will do its work. That's what he says in 13. The word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. The word will do its work. We just have to not botch it. Okay? That is, don't be a distraction. Don't confuse the message. Don't, don't make it something that it's not. Don't exploit people. You, you get the idea. Just let the word speak for itself, and it will do its word. Don't, don't distract it. Okay, seven points, five closing words. So the challenge, as we share the gospel, it is to live consistently, not to distract or confuse. Avoid the things they avoided. Cultivate the things they did. The five closing words. All right, first, this is not a recipe with certain outcomes. That is, you can live well for Christ Share the gospel, and that doesn't mean that everyone you share with will come to Christ. Okay? You can trust the word to do its work in time. Don't despair. Keep praying, keep sharing, keep loving, keep living, and press on. Trust the word to do its work, but don't feel like there's a promise broken if you share and live well and someone doesn't believe. Second, this is not a legalistic burden. Don't leave here thinking, oh gosh, I've got three things to stop doing and four things to start doing. Don't think like that. This is not a, a legalistic burden. All of these things flow from the gospel. Because in Christ, 
In the gospel, we have everything we need for life and joy. So we don't have to flatter people. We don't need anything from them. We don't have to exploit people financially because there's nothing they can give us. We don't need to play any kind of power games because we don't need that. Because in Christ, we have everything we need. So we don't need any of, these, any of this nonsense. In Christ, we can be gentle. He frees us to be gentle, to live with integrity, to relate to people gently, but also firmly and in exhorting them to move forward. All of these things come from the gospel. So if you're struggling in any of these areas, don't leave here determined to do better. Leave here determined to go to Jesus. That is where it starts. That's where it always starts. You, you go to him because the word will do its work in your life as well. Third, third of five, we're getting there. Don't think, well, I'm not where I should be in some of these areas, so I need, to, I need to get better. I need to be good in these areas before I tell anyone about Jesus. That is an enormous mistake. None of us are where we should be. I am not where I should be. But the gospel lets us acknowledge that. The gospel frees us to not pretend to be anything that we're not. So we acknowledge our brokenness. We live lives marked by repentance. We hate sin when we find it. And the Lord somehow graciously uses us, though we are far from perfect. Fourth, I want to challenge you to share the gospel every day with at least one person. Yourself. Okay? Before you do anything else, before you talk to anyone else, you share the gospel with yourself. Okay? This is not about how... To, I really felt the need to say this because of the emphasis today on, on what we should be doing. I just want you to understand that all of this has to be centered in the gospel. Okay? Preach the gospel to yourself. I have an alarm set on my phone and... You know, they get a little message with it. You know, wake up. Usually to like Andrew Peterson, is he worthy? I love that song. It's just a great way to set my mind. But a little message on the phone it just says good news. And it just reminds me, oh yeah, the gospel. <laughs> That's what it's about. Before I get dressed, get coffee, anything else, I just am reminded that the gospel is central. Now, if I got to get up at 3.30 to, you know, like see the planets line up as this week, any of you get up to see that? It's awesome. I mean, it looked, you couldn't tell they weren't stars, but I thought it was cool. Um, okay, I, you totally have no idea what I'm talking about. So this week, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Saturn, Jupiter are all in a line. So, you know, got up, Karen and I got up, looked at it, thought, this is cool. Back in bed by 3.35, it was awesome, you know. So if I have to do that, if I to get up, you know, to catch the 5 o'clock plane, I might have to use ZZ Top instead of Andrew Peterson. But that's okay. You got to make your flight. Do what you got to do, but keep it gospel-centered, okay? With all the emphasis on doing, preach the gospel to yourself. Any change is going to come by the gospel. Keep the focus on Christ. Finally, yes, we are there. Finally, as you've heard all of this challenge about how we should live before people with whom we share, you actually may realize that the position you're in today is that you need the gospel. Now, all of us need the gospel. I've just said we should preach the gospel to ourselves, but you may be here today, you've never made any commitment to Christ, not yet a believer in Christ. It would not surprise me to find there are some here who have made a faith commitment to Christ and yet have been so wounded by the terrible actions of believers or churches 
that their faith has been just hindered or, or stunted at, at some point, and that might be you. The gospel in Christ, that is the answer. I believe he is calling you to himself today. In his name, we call you to turn from your sin, put your faith, hope, and love in him. He died and rose again that he might be your Lord. So we pray, hope you will come to him, turn from yourself, turn from your sin, come to him today. If you want to talk more about this, please find one of us after the service today and let us help point you in the right direction, help us point you to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for the way we see it lived out in these verses. And we read this and our, uh, our hearts are pricked because we, we just don't, uh, we're not where Paul and his team were, though they, we know they were normal, fallible people. Uh, we pray that you would help us to just come to you, to drink deeply of, of the gospel of Christ, and out of that, that our lives would be changed, our lives would be consistent. And Lord, we pray that we would, as we open our mouths, as we share the gospel, I pray first for boldness to do that very thing, but then that you would help our lives to not undermine or contradict that in any way. I pray you'll help us to not do anything that would bring embarrassment to you, anything that would bring confusion to people who are seeking you. Help our lives to match what our words say. Please, I pray that for myself, for my friends here today, for all listening, watching online. Please, may it be so for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.